0: Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about movie soundtracks. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about movie soundtracks. Brother Brother Podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with Jeremy and Christian, and today we are talking about soundtracks, movie soundtracks. And um, we were talking a little bit ahead of this because we were trying to get on the same page as far as what's a score and what's a soundtrack. And basically, it comes down to the fact that a score is is the uh, original music written for a film that sort of lays under uh, the film and tells you how to emote, whether to be scared or happy or. Uh, frightened or cry or whatever, and uh, the soundtrack is generally the, the songs that are used, and um, and a lot of times, in- increasingly since uh, the advent of the commercially viable soundtrack, um, one of the great marketing tools for for a movie that um, you know includes uh, certain songs. Um, going back to uh, sort of the '50s '60s, um, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between. The uh, the score and the soundtrack, um, you know, you, you go back and you had, you know, Bernstein, you know, the, the popular musicians of the day, popular composers of the day, uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, Henry Mancini doing Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, you know, some really edgy uh, experimental music uh, and the likes of, you know, Clockwork Orange uh, by Walter, now Wendy Carlos uh, and Neo Morricone. Uh, who did a lot of the Clint Eastwood and the Spaghetti Westerns, um, Giorgio Moroder, Tangerine Dream, John Williams doing a lot of the Spielberg, Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders, um, you know, on through the line. Uh, some of more crossover hits, things like uh, Chariots of Fire by Vangelis, uh was an actual number one song as well as being, um, you know, really part of the score. And remains
1: a remains number one song in just about every Chinese restaurant in America. <laughs> um, by- in, in your heart.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, exactly. and, and, you know, it becomes, you know, be you know, there there's this period where, you know, and I I had this sort of realization before we came on that, you know, probably, you know, 70, you know, 90 some odd percent of the class, quote classical music that we know from the last 75 years is probably uh due in large part to to film soundtracks. I mean, you don't get a lot of, you know, classical hits anymore, but the second you hear the Rocky theme or uh, Nino Rota's Godfather's uh, score you know exactly uh, what you're listening to yeah. and, and they're very identifiable. all the again all the uh, John Williams stuff
1: to, go ahead to track back to your, your earlier definition a little bit um, I mean one of the distinctions it seems to me is like scoring is something I mean is typically non um you know it doesn't have any lyrics uh, it's just instrumental
0: yeah largely instrumental and also you know i mean
1: because it's sort of it's the atmospherics right it's the music right. around the 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 drama that you're watching whereas like soundtracks to me it sounds like you know sometimes they can be original soundtracks in the sense that artists are making them just for this movie like you know actually was was i the tiger original or not it was
0: it was an original okay. so there go. you
1: go rocky three so that's like a that would that to me would be like an original, you know, song obviously on a soundtrack for a movie that's not like part of a score per se. Um but you know, but you also just get movies that have like Sofia Coppola is like awesome at, you know, just compiling great playlists that yeah. like accompany her movies basically. Wes
0: yeah, Anderson the whole. But uh, but uh, you know, the other thing is that uh, you know, a score is in large part, you know, you there is curatorial uh soundtracking after where somebody says, "You know what?" Song would be amazing in the scene, blah, 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 or even writing a But a score is actually written by a musical composer who is watching the film and playing music to accentuate what is going on in the film.
2: Part of the editing right. process. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, okay, anyway.
1: That's, a, that's clear.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it. it you know, basically, there was a switchover in the fifties uh, going into the sixties you know as rock and roll is as sort of taking a foothold with youth culture and um you know as we talked about on our you know perfect albums uh in and even our greatest rock and roll uh, American rock band um, segments we you know th- the, this was rock and roll was still a singles art form until you know the album kind of overtook it and, and that 's really around uh, the mid sixties when the Beatles are putting out um, you know revolver and then the Beach Boys answer with pet sounds and the Beatles answer you know with the white album um, and Sgt. peppers but uh you know before that you you had a lot of singles and the the way one of the ways that they were originally trying to market the music uh, and the personalities and the entire package around, you know, the Elvis and, and, you know, young rock and roll stars was by making movies with them in them. And I don't know if you you guys have ever seen any of these uh, Elvis movies from um, 50s and 60s, but, uh, you know, things like Blue Hawaii and, and things, they always had a soundtrack and they always had a, a song that was marketed alongside the film, but the film was was largely just...
1: Uh, I was gonna say this is like when you're making a movie to accompany a soundtrack. It's exactly. not exactly the other way around.
0: No, that's exactly what was going on. The Beatles, you know, happened to strike gold by by um, actually making a couple of really good movies that were entirely, you know, uh, intended to be uh, promotional tools and and uh, and marketing um, materials. But you know, essentially for you know for whatever reason, the right. Um, combination of directors and writers and and personalities—they're um, really enjoyable movies. I mean, Hard Days Night and Help, and um, you know, even later when they did things like Yellow Submarine and the Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, those are fun. Um, you know, particularly Hard Days Night is a great movie in and of itself. Well, this is
1: this may be shortly thereafter, but I think then you then you get into um, Harry Nilsson had that movie The Point, which um, you know was a, a fan favorite among. Many of the experimental psychedelic uh, high school students, um, even even when I was uh, (laughs) even when I was around. My wife
0: was uh, did the they did the point in I think junior high or high school high school I guess. Um, That was really yeah. I I didn't realize. I mean, I knew me and my arrow, but um, a little boy named
1: Oblio. Yeah. Oh, did you guys do it too? No, but i uh, I actually have the movie. I remember like I was you know I, I thought it was uh, like the DVD I mean I you know the, we all sort of read a lot into it and thought it was a really cool sort of like throwback arty thing so
0: yeah well it, it was a it was a great idea. I don't think Carrie Nielsen had the uh, the linear uh, thought process to really make it make a whole <laughs> lot of sense um, you know <laughs> the, 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 you know forty five seconds he spent sober that year. Were were probably utilized otherwise, but um, you know, so after the Elvis Beatles movies and and you know directors who are naturally kind of older, um, you know, film directors, people who whose you know who have the trust of an entire uh, film placed in their uh, in their care tended to be a little bit older. So you know they they may have been rock and roll fans, but it still was on the cusp of you know older men. Um, being in charge of these things, and so you know the the, the first few um, you know rock and roll soundtracks that became sort of hit records uh, came in the you know late '60s, early '70s when younger directors and the sort of the advent of the sort of authorial uh, director golden era of of cinema um, was ushered in by people like. Um, Mike Nichols, uh, who got Simon and Garfunkel to do the um, uh, the soundtrack for The Graduate, and um, uh, Hal Ashby, who you know utilized Cat Stevens beautifully in Harold and Maude. Um, you got people like uh, Robert Altman, who did Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, got Dylan to do the soundtrack, which was pretty amazing. And then you had uh, the black exploitation films of the day, which were phenomenal sources. Of original music, I mean Curtis Mayfield's Superfly is remarkable. Isaac Hayes's is Shaft, um, you know, these are landmark albums.
2: You well, we can't um, leave out Easy Rider when, which was also oh yeah, yeah. Um, so. You know Steppenwolf and kind of one of the first rock and roll soundtracks as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I mean those were the first ones to really you know again be a hit record performance. Who um, I believe it was Nicholas Rogue. Who did performance with um, you know starring Mick Jagger, uh, who thankfully ended his acting career, um, or or used it sparingly, but uh, performance you know songs like "Memo from Turner" and things uh, they're pretty you know that's a pretty great rock and roll soundtrack as well. Right around the same time, you have uh, or through you know as a through line through this whole thing as we're talking about full albums that are being done for films, you you also have the. you know, the sort of, um, you know, the apex of, of, of popular music at that point was finding out who was going to do the, the James Bond song in a particular, uh, film. So, you, you know, you have, a, again, like Shirley Bassey doing Goldfinger and, uh, Wings eventually doing Live and Let Die in 73, I believe. Um, Carly Simon. I love Spy, that I love song. Me. It's great. It's great uh, song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no more jam and use of piccolo in the earth, in the universe than, uh, Wings on uh, Live and Let Die. I mean, ultimately, that led to, you know, Duran Duran did one in the 80s, and, you know, it, it was a, it was a big thing. Like, every, every time a Bond movie came out, they were going to reveal who the new Bond girl was, and that was sort of, you know, that was it, uh, you know, cementing your it girl status, and then who was going to do the Bond song, which, you know... Yeah, and of, even into,
1: well, when I was growing up, I mean, like, that's, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, the most recent... Was it the most recent bond uh, was was Adele and then yeah. prior to that we've had Chris Cornell and, and Jack White doing yeah. it. So yeah, they, I mean that's been a pretty consistent pretty consistent like status thing for a long time.
0: Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a very big deal. There was some uh, there were some uh, fumbled choices, I will say, along the line, but um, otherwise it is a it was a pretty sweet deal. But anyway, let's um, you wanna take a quick break and we can come back and, and talk about Uh, some of the, you know, what, the 70s film and and the advent of the blockbuster?
1: Yeah, I've definitely got a few questions about musicals in there, too, so let's do that. All right, cool.
0: We're talking movie soundtracks tonight, and we're sort of uh, we're we're uh, doing it semi-linearly, and uh, but we're trying to go uh, decade to decade, and and you know the sort of the explosion of the soundtrack. I mean the the absolute um, you know sort of uh, skyrocketing of the soundtrack came in the mid '70s when. Um, and I think I recounted the story during the disco pod, but basically Robert Stigwood decides he's going to get into the movie production and he is going to produce a movie called Saturday Night Fever. And he was also the manager of the BGS and several other acts at that point. Uh, he had done a lot of theater production and was uh, kind of a, a notoriously nefarious character. But what he did was he heard the new songs that the Bee Gees were putting together at that point, um, which included "Staying Alive, Night Fever, uh, How Deep Is Your Love, uh, for their new album, and he said, hey, what, what if we use this as the soundtrack for um, the new album that I, I mean, sorry, the new film that I'm producing called Saturday Night Fever, about a young group of guys from Brooklyn who, you know, sort of break out on Saturdays and uh, at the disco and, and, you know, have real talent. Um, Actually, the really story good, of my life. Yeah, a really good movie though. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's it, you know it, it's got such uh, sort of iconography, and you know sort of scoffed at for being so cheesy. But the the movie, underlying movie, is actually a pretty decent
2: movie. It is a good um, movie. The, surprised seeing it and then realizing that this is like I'd heard the soundtrack. You know, my entire sort of adolescence, and then uh, you know or it was kind of like the the disco sounds right that you pop on and, and goof around to and then actually see the movie and realize
1: it was good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, totally it's, something that became like a victim of its own like, popularity in a way. Yeah, um, it was
0: a you know, or the, Well, also, I mean the other the other uh, you know, sort of coinciding incident, I guess it was a year later, you know, this gigantic movie star, John Travolta, who's been created uh, you know, in the wake of Saturday Night Fever, takes a second movie which is a musical called Grease also produced by Robert Stigwood. And that album, you know, was, you know, exponentially uh, successful and, you know, had, you know, a string of number one hits, uh, including... Basically a musical
2: the, movie, right?
0: Yeah, it was a musical movie. It was, a, it was a, and very campy and goofy, uh, very 70s. And uh, But, you know, again, Barry Gibb, who had the absolute magic touch at this point, um, you know, they commissioned him to write the theme song for Greece, which is a disco song. Uh, about a fifties, uh, about a you know uh, a fifties high school uh, full of thirty six year olds apparently, um, but uh, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's
2: do you mind if we like pause a little bit and talk about the seventies win? So this is going to be yeah. kind of your uh, your decade. Yeah. So we could do a little bit of education for Christian and I. I mean, I certainly remember these movies post, but on my VHS or uh, Beta, um, you know, cassettes. So what I mean, like. When these came out, was well, it more album? Was it movie? Like what was? Well,
0: that's here? a that's a funny thing. Is that you know the whole idea of what you know about you know uh, theaters and film and movies and how they play now? You know, there's such a established cycle, but there wasn't back then. You'd release a movie, and if it was popular, it would stay in the theater. You know, you weren't talking about there was no multiplexes yet. So you release a a movie, and if it's popular and it continues to sell tickets, you keep it in the movie theater. And movies like Saturday Night Fever and Grease, uh, originally Jaws, uh, which came out in the summer of 75, um, you know, these movies hit, and they were so popular, and people saw, that and, and after that Star Wars, people saw them over and over again, so you had a repeated business of people coming to the movies, you know, I remember when I was in elementary school, and Star Wars came out, um, you know, be like, uh oh, Kenny you know, Kenny Smith saw Star Wars six hundred times. No he didn't, you know. Um yeah. it was uh it was competitive, repetitive viewing. And um so these these movies stuck around for a really long time and therefore, you know, the, the sound the longevity, the popularity of the soundtrack, um, you know, went hand in hand with that, but also the longevity of the soundtrack. Um, you know, Saturday Night Fever singles were released over the course of, you know, half a year if you can you know believe that it's, you know, or a year maybe. Um, you know, that album was on the top of the charts for for very close yeah. to, you know, all of that year. Um, and then well, Greece Greece, as well, I would and then but basically this is what created um, you know, the the um distribution model that that we have now and this is what had people in the 80s you know sort of searching for that blockbuster because if you got a blockbuster it stayed in the theaters um and in Can the I, 80s you go ahead sorry go ahead
2: no i was gonna say and then there was another camp during the 70s so the scorseses the popolas that also you know weren't were making sort of avant-garde director um you know kind of the director is taking control. I think you mentioned the golden yeah. era of, of cinema earlier. Was, yeah, the auteur. And they were using, of... you know, I mean, the opening of Mean Streets is a stone song, and, and the opening of uh, <clears throat> Apocalypse Now is, you know, a very drunk... <laughs> um, <kind of laughs> Martin, facing, Sheen. Uh, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, you know, punching a mirror that apparently was absolutely 100% just them filming him drunk punching a mirror to uh, the doors, this is the end. So, I mean, you had kind of a... a you had this sort of made for movie soundtrack, especially with Grease and like Xanadu and Car Wash. Uh, Saturday Night cool. Fever, you know, maybe a little less so, but they kind of morphed the movie into the soundtrack. And then you had these guys that were playing pretty cool, edgy kind of rock
0: music with <clears throat> edgy movies, basically. Well, what it was too, and, and, you know, I think I sort of mentioned this briefly before, but, you know, these are the, this is the first batch of, of directors that's young enough to be rock fans. I mean, you know, Scorsese did The Last Waltz. Um, you know, these are these are people who were actually, you know, very serious. You know, they were um, hanging out together. Yeah, and they were also just, you know, huge fans. They were they were very knowledgeable and they were big fans. So, you know, the is this is this also the
1: dawn of? I mean, I know, you know, we we've talked, uh, we read that great book um, Powerhouse, which is sort of the story of CAA last year. Was this also the the origin of agencies, pack. I mean, packaging. You know, they had. They suddenly had musicians on their on their uh, yeah, roster a, as well as movies. So I mean, it, as well as directors it, and producers.
0: Yeah, I don't think any. There was. You know, it was more of a. Uh, you know, it was more of a uh, confluence of. of things coming together it was less of a it was I, more organic less yeah, less contrived or maybe i'm wrong you know I, I wasn't there for it i was only there I think as, the a, 80s as a child and a might have morphed
2: into that a little more When you okay. say when i mean Much not that more. i was that's, very well, seventies, was... since i was born in the late 70s but but i think that uh, <clears throat> the 80s became that sort of like package deal where you had um probably you know kenny Loggins agent it was, you know, with Tom Cruise's agent. And yeah. They put it on the Top Gun soundtrack or We're something. We're going to
0: make magic happen. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly.
0: Yeah, and I'm kind of making
2: a... that up, but I sort of see it as actually happening.
0: No, it, it was, uh, well, what happened was, you know, I think, um, you know, as is typical with Hollywood, um, you know, something is a hit organically, and then it is a, the attempt to duplicate it uh has diminishing returns, but sometimes, you know what I mean? It's, you know, the, that you mentioned Car Wash and Thank God It's Friday. I mean, those were two movies that were just patched together to to create soundtracks. I mean, Last Dance was from, from the Thank God It's Friday soundtrack. Thank God It's Friday with, I believe, Deborah Winger and Jeff Goldblum, a very young Deborah Winger and Jeff Goldblum. Um, Xanadu, uh, Olivia Newton John coming off of Greece and doing I a that so you know. so many times when I was young. Did you? Can you tell me what it's about, please? I have no idea. <laughs> Chicks on <laughs> roller skates. Yeah, it's like <laughs> a roller disco um, heaven, I believe. Or, Lots you know, of leotards. A roller... and,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: a lot of feathered hair. Um, it's just a lot of guys like, like Rex Smith. It was, you know, it was just so, you know, essentially much like, you know, every other juggernaut that hits Hollywood, uh, everybody scrambles to try and imitate it. And um, there you have, you know, that's when you get train crashes like Xanadu and um, uh, Can't Stop the Music, which I've referenced before. A uh, Nancy Walker directed film starring Bruce Jenner and the Village People. Um, <laughs> and, I have to see that, by the way. Oh, it is far and away the worst movie that's ever been made. <laughs> it, 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 You know, like, I can tell you that Nancy Walker, who played Rhoda's mother, directed a film starring the village people and Bruce Jenner, and you can say, that doesn't sound that good. And I can be like, wait till you see it. Uh, it it's, it's so much worse than you can imagine. Um, and uh, so then, you know, then you get into, you know, sort of a... There was an early early 80s um you know sort of rock and roll type movie there was a movie called streets of fire which had a, a really huge soundtrack it was a pretty crap movie um and it, it weirdly uh, a, f- a fairly um you know uh Estimable director involved um the same guy that did the um commitments and and uh, some of that stuff commitments another uh, later uh one that got big but um you know, you had Eddie and the Cruisers, which had a big hit uh, with "On the Dark Side," uh, which everybody thought was a Springsteen song. Um, "Streets of Fire" that had "I Can Dream About You," and um, you know some other uh, big I hits. That
2: awful song came from.
0: Yeah, I can, and um, but then you know you got into you know Footloose and Top Gun, which were really big. But should
2: we take a break and go into the 80s? Because there's a lot in the 80s, I feel like. I feel like you have the the Hughes crowd, the Miami Vice crowd. Yeah,
0: let's take a break and come back and we'll talk about the 80s because that's... But back to the Brother 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 podcast today we are talking movie soundtracks and uh we're we're reaching the crest of the era when jeremy uh has uh, gained consciousness and um, is uh is starting to to take in some uh, pop cultural influences uh environmentally um, and I believe that uh, began with you being bashed over the head with a with a single soundtrack
2: yeah. well... <laughs> We'll start there,
0: and, and uh,
2: otherwise known as when my parents stopped parenting and put me in front of a TV set. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll say the first thing was is the Big Chill soundtrack. And I think when you would agree, I mean, that had to have been like one of the biggest hit soundtracks that came out. I think it came out in 83.
0: Yeah, and it was a this- huge hit in the same way that Oh Brother, Where Art, though, is later. It sort of came, yeah. you know, it was put out, and then it was so big. And it sold so well. And it was, I have to think, it was kind of unexpected because all it basically is is a curated Motown. It's one tape. of the
2: soundtracks that your parents had on A Track and then <laughs> bought the cassette and then eventually bought the CD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like but, the total, like any road trip you took, full of nostalgia, the ultimate baby boomer soundtrack, you know, mm-hmm. that you could find all of the Motown and, and sort of, uh, you know, 60s classics. But at the same time, I think the 80s is where, You know, I guess Christian had mentioned earlier sort of like this big business of soundtracks and and soundtrack movies came about. And I would say, you know, two of kind of the the most influential are three, actually. Any movie that John Hughes did was kind of the cool factor. So a guy who directed films only in suburban Illinois for a very specific reason that he didn't want, you know, these hot kind of up and coming stars um, to deal with L.A. and the L.A. scene. Also, was was smart enough to know that, like, hey, what are kids listening? To? Like, what, what what is it that I'm not hearing um, that kids are listening to? And this is pre, obviously. Uh, he was actually you know, pretty young at
0: this point. Yeah,
2: was he? Uh, you know, he's a mystery because he's a guy who's kind of stayed a mystery and, until his death. And, and but uh, but you know, you got to hear you know, psychedelic furs. You got to hear you know, obviously the classic uh, soundtrack to um, Breakfast Club. We have civil minds don't you forget about me as is, is they're walking off and the beginning um you know it, it was just go ahead sorry no what, you what were was, was in high school
0: yeah i was in junior high and high school uh when that came when those were coming out pretty in pink then uh breakfast club i mean i'm sorry 16 candles then breakfast club then pretty in pink and then uh um you know some other you know again uh it was a sliding scale after that but um Basically, this was the first time. You know, again, I was my sources for new new music were sort of college radio and and trips to England. And this is the first time I started hearing that music mainstream. You know, even though it doesn't feel at all edgy now, stuff like Depeche Mode and, and OMD and things of that nature weren't being played on rock radio. And then uh, John Hughes kind of popularized them, and those soundtracks were you know were up there with the most popular albums. Um, you know, people had those soundtracks, and they were, you know, they were treated as as albums as opposed to, you know, sort of. Um, it, it's a, it's hard to explain because, you know, it 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 it's, it's so commonplace. Well, it was though, a, it was but, a way to
2: get that music. You know, yeah. it was a way to kind of, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, pre Shazam, you know, just being like, "What is this song?" Yeah,
0: but this was, and, you know, uh, it was um, very much curated by. Um, you know, it was the, the John Hughes soundtrack with you know, uh Ferris Bueller's to a lesser degree, but uh, you know, the other ones, you know, had a lot of but Ferris Bueller you know, sort
2: of had some good stuff too. You're right. And uh <laughs> I mean I know it was it was definitely after sort of the those original ones had more obscure stuff, but even Ferris Bueller, you know, kicks off with some, some interesting tune. And then you had the the counter to that, and I was, you know, at the same age where I was just as excited to see John Hughes films were sort of the weird kind of, I mean, they weren't weird, they were mainstream, but they were sort of the the teen angst films that I got to see when I was young, having older siblings. But then I was, you know, just as stoked to go see Top Gun and (laughs) Footloose in the theater, which is the merging of just complete crap soundtracks, but I still had, or Back to the Future, right? You know, I mean, those were, I mean, those were my, yeah, those were my first albums, you know, so I had the Top Gun soundtrack with, Danger zone by King Loggins. And you had the <laughs> take, take my and there was nothing away cooler away, than Berlin. Yeah, take my there was nothing cooler than uh, Michael J. Fox, you know, grabbing the guitar and doing Johnny Be Good on Back to the Future. I mean yeah. music played a huge part and and it's funny, like I, I don't think you see that as much in film now where there's almost like a, a musical number in these movies,
0: you know? Yeah there is a, there footloose, yeah, obviously
2: many many musical numbers
0: well i and i only saw footloose for the first time a couple years ago and um i didn't realize that the song footloose plays when kevin bacon is teaching chris penn how to dance in a barn that is a yeah. really really stupid movie <laughs> it's uh, fucking horrific but um it, that said, it was a you know it was a massive soundtrack. The the theme song Footloose. I mean, Kenny Loggins was just the king of the 80s soundtrack. Uh, I'm all right off Caddyshack, which I at, yep. I believe it was seventy nine. But um, and then he, which had, is maybe the one Kenny
2: Loggins songs I can tolerate because of
0: Caddyshack. Yeah, but then Highway a... to the Danger Zone and uh, and um, <laughs> Footloose. Uh, I believe were... you know you in, know. In, footloose had dancing in the sheets let's hear it for the boy i mean it, it had a raft of hits and it was i think the number one album of that one of the you know one of the top basically the 80 it was 84 well, those yeah,
2: 84 I mean, was were... the year
0: that born in the usa thriller was still hanging around purple rain comes out another soundtrack um like a virgin well, I, hold, and hold off and, on purple
2: rain because i want to talk about those and i think that's one where Christian and I can kind of ask you. To,
0: you ask you Yeah, but then the other the piece one,
2: is. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh no, no, please go ahead.
2: I was going to say. So you also had it was the Miami Vice, yep. which, again, had you know Glenn Fry, Phil Collins, and you kind of had it was a show that was so of the time, not only in fashion, in subject matter, but also music. But the and I remember. It, people having the vinyl of the Miami Vice soundtrack. You yeah, know? the thing that?
0: about the Miami Vice soundtrack, which might not have added up entirely to you because you were very young and, and, you know, sort of consuming it, you know, very earnestly, was that, you know, Miami Vice, the TV show, was the first show that was, like, not a studio show. It was shot on location. It was shot in a very filmic way. It was directed by Michael Mann and it basically got its visual inspiration from music videos and so the whole show was basically like what i think the whole premise of the of the idea of Miami Vice was what if we what if we turned music videos into a television program and that was sort of the the ethos behind Miami Vice and it had a massive you know resonance it had a ma- it was hugely popular i mean it was you know absolutely the shit for, you know, kids my age, uh, you know, high school and younger and then um, you know, it had but it you know, it had all those, you know, rock. Oh, it was the show that like
2: system. if a kid that I knew had gotten to see an episode it was like you know, like yeah. you got to see Miami Vice? Oh my god.
1: I wish I knew, yeah, I'm not really sure, but does the new the reboot of Miami Vice does that treat music in the same I mean
0: do you know? Have you guys uh, checked that out at all? I think it tried to. I think it tried and failed. Yeah. Um, you know, it was really the 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 you know again the the newness of the idea of making a television program that looked like music videos that had that sleek uh, commercial feel of, of um you know you music cigarette videos boats
2: and girls in bikinis.
0: <laughs> yeah, but not only that, but just you know lasers and but, t-shirts. No, there's a lot of you know moody lighting and and you know. Yeah. No. electronic scoring and, and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it had, it was, it basically were, who was you know, the were who the was, it was the like composer who did Jan Hammer, Jan Hammer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so there was
2: like Crockett's theme. I mean, they, those were, those were songs upon themselves, you know, mm-hmm. I mean the, the sort of, when we go back to soundtrack versus score, the score to Miami Vice was also just as important as, uh, you know, can you hear it the, or, uh, i messing up the Phil Collins song. Yeah. In the air tonight. So, uh, in the air tonight,
0: yeah. You know, which was like a huge my Everybody song as well. Yeah, so, and then so, um, I just wanted to touch uh, two more quick 80s, and they're not related soundtracks, but, you know, one for the kids who, uh, like me, were were sort of into that uh, alternative side of things, like the John Hughes stuff, but thought it was too uh, this one. M- mainstream, Where uh, the Repo Man soundtrack. Repo Man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone I knew who I liked had the Repo Man soundtrack and memorized it and, you know, institutionalized by uh, Suicidal Tendencies was like, you know, it couldn't, they're, 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 there's never been a better song written for 14-year-olds. Well,
2: Suicidal Tendencies. I mean, it was a, uh, that again, to your point, Wynn, was, it was a way to find that music. And I, and I, when we get to the 90s, I think we can touch on that as well because I, mm-hmm. I think pre-internet, that, that, that was something that, soundtracks kind of and especially film soundtracks prior to tv kind of
0: allowed you to find new music um, Yeah, the other ones that i just wanted to, to quickly touch on and, and you know i think we'll end with a discussion of purple rain in this segment but um you know the decline of western civilization which i saw in the theater um which was another punk rock soundtrack that you know i is you know uh, phenomenal even though it's a documentary how,
1: how universal was its release
0: not not particularly, but it was among the people who found Repo Man. They then found Decline of Western Civilization. Sure. You know what I mean? It was, uh, you know, it was a gateway. Uh, they were uh, gateways for one another, and, and it was uh, hugely influential. <clears throat> I couldn't tell you about the, um, you know, the, the scope of it, how many people actually had it or listened to it or whatever, because um, I have no idea, but I just know that within my high school, um, you know, it was... a a coveted piece of art and in the um, cult classic
2: section of the video yeah story.
0: and then when um jonathan demme made stop making sense for you know that i remember i i remember not never walking past a uh, a commercial kitchen you know in the back of a restaurant where that wasn't playing during uh you know the preparation hours that that, that album was just everywhere like it um, was big it was huge, and the movie was good and it was fun and but it was another one of those soundtracks that like your parents had and you had and you know it was pretty good well, demi was an
2: up and coming director again who liked
0: music and yeah kind of, well know, he, played, he- you like, know he did he did did the you know went one further and he liked to include live music in his films, actually, but not live music in the sense of... I mean, he did, you know, The Feelies were the the band playing the high school reunion in in, um, Something Wild. But, um, you know, things like Rachel at the Wedding uh, later and... um, uh, I'm sorry, Rachel getting married later and, um, uh, you know, Something Wild. uh, All those movies had people actually singing in them without being musicals or without being performative sections of the movie it's a kind of a weird hybrid but it was more like you know you'd be walking by some place that had a live music uh, you know like a music venue and then that would just be part of the sound in the, uh, in the film I'm doing a terrible job of of, uh, of articulating what this is but you know it basically he had performers in his movies band singing that, the that weren't the focal point yeah. isn't Stuff Making Sense a concert film? Con- Something Making Sense yeah. is actually a concert Probably film yeah Sorry, like, yeah, like, like The Last Waltz, right? Correct, but uh, Jonathan Demi was more of a, a narrative, uh, you know, feature film director. He, he just happened to love music, so um, he did a concert film for uh, The Talking Heads, and it was, yeah, it was a lot like that. It was, in, in fact, when it came out and subsequent, it was sort of deemed that generation's last waltz.
1: Well it was also okay and it was also I remember like a big deal because it was the first film it was the first movie soundtrack that was made entirely using sort of digi- digital audio um recording.
0: That could yeah that could be I don't remember the technology behind is, it but it was a you know it was a very fil- for a concert film it was very filmic. It was you know and it there was, was nothing. It was a very theatrical
2: performance. And yeah.
0: the and the giant suit and that became a trope too that everybody You know, caught on, caught onto for a while. There, like everybody who was doing comedy was showing up in the giant David Byrne suit, uh, or some variation of the giant David Byrne suit. uh, You know, uh, doing something.
2: Speaking of concert films, and this is actually something I'm genuinely curious about. You know, having been you know in grade school when Purple Rain came out, and Purple Rain and Madonna and Bon Jovi (laughs) being you know the three biggest acts, um, of that time, you know, was, you know, those songs were huge, right? I mean, I remember pre-Purple Rain, Prince being very big, obviously, you know, Purple Rain was, you know, on the radio nonstop. How was the movie received? So was it like... It was well-received. Okay. So was it, but it was something that like everyone went out and saw that was old. Obviously I couldn't at the time. Yes. I was in like third grade or something, but, um, okay. Yeah, it, that, he had know, the he case. had the number one about songs.
0: He had the number one song, the number one album, and the number one movie in the country at that point. At one point, and um, it was a movie where people kind of held their breath uh, in the same way, but to a lesser degree. Uh, you know, so like when Eight Mile came out. Um, uh, when when Purple Rain came out, it was sort of like oh, this guy's interesting. No one's ever heard him talk. Like, who, who is this guy? You know, I mean, what's he gonna what's he gonna do in this movie? And the movie was fairly straightforward. Um, I I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's, it's a fairly straightforward bio, you know, autobiographical film with a lot of performance in it. Um, the performance itself would have made the movie worth seeing, but the, you know, the, the story behind it was very simple, easy to follow. And, um, it wasn't embarrassing and his acting was decent. I mean, he's not bad at playing himself, um, which is not a given for a lot of people, by the way. um, and so, uh, it actually, you know, I remember, you know, it was your classic three and a half star, you know, B plus a, you know, kind of movie, uh, it, it, you know, and, and it, it's held up well as a period piece. Um, but the, you know, the, the whole thing was, you know, very well regarded. I mean, people like Siskel and Ebert would both have, you know, both liked it. Um, it got the sort of backing of the New York South times. York? Yeah. I mean, or whatever there was at that point. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, the times like you know, it was a, it was, it was a cultural juggernaut. I was just
2: curious if like kids ran out and it, you know, as I was like I said, you know, it's something that I heard nonstop. You know, I mm-hmm. heard it on my school bus on the way to the school with the, yeah, darling
0: know, Nikki on your school, school bus. bus. That's right. a
2: great yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I just wasn't sure if like kids your age were like running out and, and seeing the movie as, as well as buying the album.
0: Well, you also got to recall that this, you know, they, they this was not part of the marketing, but it was certainly became part of the marketing uh un, un, uh unintentionally. This is the album that Tipper Gore heard that made her start the PMRC. And so, right. you know, she hears Darling Nikki, she decides she wants to put warning labels on records, and what could be more tantalizing to every kid in America than here's the here's the album that you're, you know, that the uh Senator, you know, the, the you know, everybody in the Senate's wife doesn't want you to hear, and this is the, and then it becomes the Um, your mother doesn't want you to hear. And uh, there's never been anything that sold records better than uh, parental fear and objection. So, in the
2: 80s, I think we just to recap before we move on the decades and take a break here, you had the, the sort of kind of you know, director focused. Underground kind of bringing bringing college rock to the surface with John Hughes and, and Jonathan Demi and folks like that. Mm-hmm. You also had the, the mega hits, you know, where I think uh, we talked about earlier, where you had sort of studios and record labels kind of polluting. Yeah, the sort but, of
0: corporate soundtrack.
2: Yeah, the Dirty dancings, the you know, in which all the Big Chill kind of kicked off, and then the Miami Vice obviously starts the the new era of TV drama with with rock, and then you know Purple Rain is the ultimate uh
0: concert film in the soundtrack. Yeah, Purple Rain Stop making sense We're both massive. All right. Well, I want to take a, take a break quick break, break and come back. Yeah, yeah. let's uh, let's listen to some stuff and then we'll come back. Uh, Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, We are creeping into the 90s now and and carrying over from those sort of curated soundtracks that that were uh, big sellers in the 80s and um, uh, the advent of of television um, sort of taking on its own uh, pop and rock and roll soundtracks. Um, You, Christian, began uh, becoming alert in the 90s, uh, as I recall, semi-alert in the 90s. Um, rising uh, into uh, pop culture relevance, what uh, what were the big what were the big moments uh, that you guys see in the '90s in terms of like soundtracks that changed things? Well,
1: I, I think the first time I was actually aware of a movie soundtrack being something that was sold as a CD, um, and this is kind of a tragedy, uh, actually, was was with the movie Space Jam in 1996. <laughs> Which um, unfortunately, I still have a lifelong disdain uh, for, for Seal, um, for uh, Fly Like an Eagle, and um, R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. Uh, other tracks on that on that in- were included Bugs Bunny doing a song called Buggin', and uh, Chris Rock and Barry White doing a song called Basketball Jones. Well, that's it a was a complete cover. piece. Yep, it was not a good song, uh, not a good, not a good soundtrack, I should say. Not to mention the fact that this was a, a really misguided attempt at a movie as well, with the combination of animation and some of the best actors, also known as current NBA stars. Um, so really, <laughs> it was uh, it was a pretty pretty big Rescue mess. Yeah, except that I'm sure it did really well and sold a shit ton of records, so it's I'm like I can't pretty, I,
0: even if I'm not mistaken, I think um and we can get the we'll get the Titanic soundtrack after, but I believe I can believe I can I believe I can fly it was the second best selling uh song of the nineties. Oh. Really? Yes. <laughs> after All right. Uh, well, we can. We just. We know, just might need, we need to throw
1: like. that decade out then. Yeah,
0: <laughs> um, it, it did. It had some pretty <laughs> dire moments. I mean, there. You know, as much as I have happy recollections, and, and, and actually, this is where you know. This is really where the uh, you know where this whole conversation uh, germinated was. Uh, singles was celebrating a 25th anniversary of the single yeah. soundtrack and the singles film. And, um, you know, that was such a seminal album in uh, turning so many people on to that particular variety of music. I mean, that never mind, Nevermind were kind of, you know, part and parcel. But, um, you know, there was other stuff around then that... Um, well, it kind of brings up the,
2: the subject of soundtracks that supersede the films, you know, and, and uh, singles certainly is one of those. And then you had the whole avant of Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs of Paul Pitcher.
0: Right, where it doesn't supersede the film necessarily so much as it does. I mean, those That's those it. albums were albums. I mean, that that you know, people listen to all the time. Cause they're, yeah, it's those like albums a, were dinner
2: party albums. I mean, you yeah. you would. I mean, or party albums or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was. Uh,
1: they're just they're popular. <clears throat> they're great mixes. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's a bunch of good songs you want to hear.
0: But it, to well, it I think it funny went back we,
2: to that 70s that we talked about earlier where you had people like Scorsese and Coppola cherry-picking great songs, and then you all of a sudden had Tarantino and people like Wes Anderson all cherry-picking great songs and putting them on mixes. And, and sometimes there was songs like, you know, for instance, in Rushmore and the revenge scene, like, you know, playing just the end of the Who's. It's a quick one while he's, well, he's out, away. you know, which is like... An amazing snippet of a song, and that you hadn't heard before, and, and you know, or hadn't necessarily wasn't on the greatest hits package,
0: you know. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Quentin Tarantino is, is, um, you know, I mean, if you remember Reservoir Dogs, you know that that whole reason for having um, a throwback '70s, um, you know, sort of early '70s soundtrack was woven into the film itself. You had Stephen Wright yeah. as the DJ. Um, who was, and, and in fact, on the soundtrack, Stephen Wright's, um, del, you know, uh, signature voice and delivery are, are, you know, very prominent, um, in between songs, but you had, um, it was basically a throwback seventies weekend on the radio. It was yeah. like an oldie station. Yeah, right. It was the theme of the movie. Was that it was actually
1: that woven broadcast? into, yeah, it yeah. served a purpose. Yeah. Um, and.
0: It, it sort of you know it it sort of gave you a benchmark for what you know the album I mean he's famous for paying homage to different you know he's such a film nut that you know since this was his homage to the 70s heist and caper film um and so he was able to soundtrack it with 70s music by by having a radio on through the entire film whether it was in the car or in the warehouse or wherever it was then everybody was listening to the same. Um, throwback weekend from can I just
2: remind you Wynn of how we stumbled upon that movie real quick and I'm sorry to to, to digress but our cousin Marina who lives in Hollywood (laughs) and uh, was doing publicity for Reservoir Dogs had mentioned that we should see this movie it's a crime heist we happened to be living in suburban New Jersey at the time and it was playing in the one decrepit art theater, like three towns away, yeah. and we took like uh, I think it was you, me, and one of my high school buddies, and we walked out. I mean, literally walking in that film and not knowing. There's very few things that I can say. I, I was there, you know, and uh, this was one that we walked into not knowing shit
0: about what. And I actually think doing. it was a previous painting well, I don't think it came out.
1: And yeah, you walked it, out and one of you went to work in the film industry and the other one actually became a TV writer.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I like, mean, it, was, we, it had that much of an impact. I mean, I don't think we talked to each other on the way home. I think I was like... Yeah, it was like you're
1: in shock. <laughs> Did he just cut off his fucking
0: ear? <laughs> <I don't laughs> like,
1: it wasn't even was that the, Blue um, or
0: was that... <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even it was the, was Mr. the, Mr. the severity of the violence. It was the you know, overall just coolness of the movie. It was like yeah, such that a, opening you know.
2: scene, you know, I mean, it was just uh, walking out to the baseline of, you know, it was uh,
0: little green bag, little green yeah.
2: bag. Thank you. I was gonna say mama's got a new bag, but Mama, little green bag. And uh, yeah, yeah no, stuck was,
1: in the middle with you was like such a great song precisely because of that movie the
0: cut off to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a great, and I mean those are the songs of my early childhood. So it was like you know taking them and completely you know sort of uh, bastardizing them to completely like. You but know, for Christian, and them. I,
2: they were songs that had kind of fallen off of. Oh yeah, they weren't know, the yeah. music he, cycles, and it was like, whoa, this is really great. You know, this is really cool. Well, that was Ly- a funny Ly- thing and, is that all Aaron of a sudden lime everyone-
0: and the coconut, you know. All of a sudden, everyone's listening to, you know, these very obscure 70s tunes, and I'm, and they become hits. I mean, st- stuck in the middle with yeah. you, let's face it, after Reservoir Dogs became a hit again, in the same way that, you know, Harry uh, Nilsson, Steelersville, yeah. Um, or, you know, later on, uh, you know, Lust for Life, which had kind of fallen off the radar, I hate to say it. Uh, you know. It yeah, is, that's
2: another interesting one. I mean, I, we had this conversation, side conversation, and, you know, being kind of, Brought up on you know indie rock or punk rock or alternative rock whatever you want to call it, nobody was listening to Lust for Life or The Idiot and Train Spotting. Now it was later, it was later Iggy out. to open the film, and you know rightly so. You know Train Spotting pays complete you know homage to uh, Mean Streets in that intro and and a million other films, and they basically were like, yeah, we loved all these films, we just basically copied the intro, but. Um, you know, Lust for Life was a song that became a bona fide hit, probably bigger than it was oh, when it came of it. out yeah. off of Train's Body.
0: No, it definitely did. And, um, you know, I mean, some of the preacher Man." you know, people had forgotten that song and just those, you know, that opening, you know, the sort of warmth of that, you know, keyboard sound well, when it comes on is such a, like, a welcoming thing and... Um, but I don't know, the whole the whole way that Tarantino uses music in his soundtracks is, you know, sort of the his films so much and, and really, you know, sort of drives it's, his films. Yes. And also you, you wind up with a great mixtape that you can go home with.
1: Well, and so you know, I think that the sort of revival of these these older uh, older hits that you know had maybe fallen off and and weren't sort of in regular radio play anymore, um, you know, is is one sort of really interesting phenomenon. Another one that I think is is uh, sort of similar the way that a, a movie can can you know unlock new potential in um, in, uh, in in music is you know the way that it can put. Uh, maybe types of music that you wouldn't necessar- necessarily expect to hear uh, or considered you know, popular music um, and sort of send that into popular circulation. So I'm thinking, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where, you know, nobody listens to bluegrass. Um, and, by the way, nobody really has since. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, at, at a popular uh-huh. level. Like, that was one of the highest-selling albums of the year. I mean, I you know, and, and then you've got uh, Air, um, who did the soundtrack for Virgin Suicides, um which, you know, again, like French electropop um, or sort of uh, ambient atmospheric electropop isn't necessarily something that you would expect to be in, um, you know, to, to get radio player, really to get much uh, uh, popular circulation, but, but it became huge from that movie.
0: Well, I think the thing about the late 90s was that it was the second, you know, dawning of the age of the auteur. It was the same as the 70s. You know, in the 70s you had, you know, Scorsese, Altman, Coppola, You know, all these uh, George Roy, you know, people like George Roy Hill, Hal Ashby, um, all working and, um, you know, utilizing music in a a way that kind of went away with the blockbuster. And then the late 90s came back and we didn't really realize it in real time, but you had the Coen brothers, Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, um, Coppola. Coppola, yeah, Sophie Coppola. um, You know, all these people that were, and, you know, Spike Jones, all these people that were, um, again, sort of, utilizing a very unique personal vision uh, to direct films, but there were also music nuts. And so you, again, once again, and uh, with that, you got... Uh, and we're,
1: now, we're now firmly back in the thick of blockbusters and uh, in the form of Marvel comics movies. Yeah, it'll, it'll, no, it'll, but the si- the and cycle throw Danny again. Boyle
2: in there, too, when, I mean, I, I think you had a group of guys that, that were very influenced by that 70s crowd, and that's why... You
0: ended up with kind of a renaissance of soundtracks. Well, all, all nostalgia is 20 years, uh, you know, behind you. Um, okay. And so, you know, you. that's why you get, uh, you know, George Lucas making American Graffiti in the 70s, and that's why you get Grease being huge in the 70s, and that's why, you know, you get Boogie Nights being huge in the in the 90s. Um, you know, all nostalgia is usually clocked at 20, 20 years or so. Um, what it, uh, so- Go ahead. Oh no! No, I was just going to say, you know. So then you had, so you know, like we said, Quentin Tarantino, um, you know, uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson. But then you also, you know, for a brief period in the early two thousands, you had um, uh, directors who loved a certain band or artist and bringing them on to do uh, the entire soundtrack, much the same as Simon and Garfunkel. You know, sadly, this this uh, trend didn't really work out the second time. But you had you know Spike Jones bringing uh, Karen O. on to do Where the Wild Things Are, um, you know badly drawn boy doing about a boy. Tom Petty did a full album for an Ed Burns movie called She's the One. Eddie Vedder did Into the Wild, and of course Air did Virgin Suicides for Sofia Coppola. So there was that second wave of of single artist soundtracks in the '90s and 2000s. But you know, none of them took off in the way that. Uh, well, and um, I think it Mrs. broke Robinson down did. because.
2: Again, you know, some of the stuff we talked about earlier was that there was less access to that music, and I mean, I think those are good scores and good good soundtracks, but you're already hearing all of that sort of avant-garde music because it's, you have access to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: but yeah, yeah. I mean, I've actually, as I'm thinking about it, I've actually listened to the Carano soundtrack for Where the Wild Things Are. I've never seen the movie.
0: I really <laughs> love that movie.
2: It's actually a pretty good movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I know, but I mean, at the same time. Sorry, go ahead, Wynn.
0: No, no, no. I go ahead, please.
2: No, I was going to say at the same time you also had you know pre so sort of in the same era of the of the Wes Anderson film, and I, I think it had a lot to do with the age of people that were making movies and same type of thing was going on with TV. So you started to have popular TV shows like The OC, you know, featuring bands like Phantom Planet. Uh, you know, Death cat for Cutie was a, a constant conversation in that show. Modest Mouse and, and those bands and that became kind of a, a way to sort of broaden the audience for some of these bands that were considered quote unquote sort of underground as, and it was at the same time, you know, and Christian you can speak to this, at the same time the internet was opening up and sort of flooding the gates of music.
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, we saw, I mean, from from that transition I think also emerged like the fact that this was actually being picked up through other media forms. Um so I know we were, uh, you know, video games became a, became a, like, deployment vehicle for um, for cool new music, too. I mean, like, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was always a really, um, was always a really great punk soundtrack. Uh, and then GTA kind of blew the lid off that, Grand Theft Auto, which was made by this group, Rockstar Entertainment. And these guys, you know, it was the first time you had a, a, a sort of, uh, um, like, a, it was a very sort of realistic, uh, un sort of, open universe that you could explore and wander around and you could get into cars, um, and you could change radio stations. And I mean, this had, they released like an eight disc, um, you know, box set of, of all of the music, which was, and it was all sort of period music. I mean, it was from, from the eighties. I think there was one like oldies station that played fifties and sixties stuff. Um, you know, there were talk radio stations. Like, I mean, it was actually a pretty incredible, um, thing to do, but it, but it, you know, it really did immerse you in this world. And, I mean, in addition to allowing kids to, uh, you know, get sucked into something and hear constant different music over the course of 24 hours of game time, which, you know, by the way, um, helps you turn your brain into jello. o uh, also, you know, it, it, it also introduced me, I mean, I, I will totally admit it, I mean, I, you know, I started playing it probably in, uh would have been like 14 or 15 or something like that, you know, there were, like, certain Flock of Seagulls songs I'd never heard. Um, you know, and stuff stuff that I just wouldn't have been exposed to. It was to, the otherwise. ad, right?
2: Wasn't the ad for Grant um, That's Out of the Flock of Seagulls song? I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, I think it
0: was. Yeah, yeah. But, and then it moved on. I mean, with the I'm not very familiar with video games, as you guys know. Um, but I remember uh, one Christmas when uh, our niece received Rock Band for uh for christmas and oh, there yeah. that you know they you get a whole you know
1: oh that became a huge source of like even even for kids in college yeah when i was there um if so like 2000, you know, between rock, 2006 to 2010 like a ton of those gu- yeah but i mean those guys you know would not probably i can think of a lot of folks who wouldn't necessarily love more than a feeling as much as they do or love uh certain, like dragon force songs and shit um you know, but it's it's such an eclectic soundtrack. But it was yeah, it's kind of a cool uh, cool way to explore that stuff. Yeah, that, and now you know, I'm,
0: go ahead. No, go ahead, please.
1: Uh, no, that was that was all I was going to say. I, uh, mean, I was going to say that impressive. karaoke. Yeah, um, yeah, but nobody, you know, it's like that's. But who goes out to find a karaoke bar anymore? I mean, and you know, every kid in America had a Rock Band for for five years there.
0: No, mm-hmm. well, but I just mean that it's on your home console now. I and mean, they all that stuff it's good. it's just an interesting way of of having things seep into the consciousness of kids you know I mean just there's I mean you obviously do a ton of research and and know a lot about this stuff, but there's a whole world of people that know what's current and then the shit that's on rock band and that's you know that seems like a, a you know full catalog of of music to know yeah it's so, true should we uh, sh- take a break? Yeah. Back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are going to end this podcast the way we end every podcast. Uh, Christian, what are you listening to?
1: Well, I am uh, I am currently reading um, Lizzie Goodman's uh, great new uh, oral history of the New York rock scene, 2001 to 2011, called Meet Me in the Bathroom. And this uh, this actually starts off with, you know, a great sort of discussion of Jonathan Fire eater in the mid to late 90s, and then, um, you know, really sort of, uh, the the brief lull that takes place right thereafter um, and uh, and then sort of you know picks up again with um, uh, with Mooney Suzuki and the strokes and you know I've got to say it's really cool it's the first time I'm, I'm sort of reading a rock book that I feel like that I, I was alive and conscious for and like making decisions about how I consume my music so you know it's it's really not... Um, sort of ancient history to me. Uh, It's something that I felt like I sort of lived through and and was, you know, was watching these bands as they were growing and developing Um, and, you know, waiting for their next album and and sort of remember how each each one was successively received and stuff like that. So it's, you know, oral histories are just... Brutal to put together, really tough. I, you know, I think they're um, they're a, a difficult format, um, just because I mean, you've got to think about how much you've got to keep keep in your head when you're when you're um, you know conducting these kinds of interviews. But um, but I do think you know it, this is this has been it's a great read so far, um, and uh, and I'm really really psyched about it. So I'll be passing that along to you guys next.
0: Awesome, I'm looking I'd forward to it. it. Yeah, Joe, what are you listening to?
2: So. um I've been traveling a bunch for work, hence the fact that I'm recording tonight's pod out of a uh, lonely Marriott Courtyard in the middle of uh, nowhere, Maryland. And uh, I've been enjoying James Alex's from Beach uh, uh playlist. So they've done a couple, I Made This For You, short EPs where they cover great sort of 80s and, and 70s punk songs and, and general kind of rock songs. But he's also put together a couple of great playlist under the same title I made this for you and it, it kind of spans basically my sort of teenage through college years of you know the Exploding Hearts, Ride, Doo, Ash and uh, Pixies, Gun Club and they're just really good playlists so if you like rock and roll and, and like that kind of uh, punk and new wave sort of era of rock and roll and you're on planes as much as I am it's a great playlist to listen to.
0: I do like rock and roll, so that sounds good. Actually, that's a band we saw play end-to-end, uh, uh, end, um, Pleased to Meet Me by The Replacements uh, last year. Uh, it was a great concert. Yep. <laughs> um, I uh, I wish I could say that I was uh, doing something more exciting than, um, than I have been, but uh, what I did take time out to watch the other day was... Uh, Long Strange Trip, the Grateful Dead documentary. And I am a big fan of the rock doc. I am uh, not a particularly large fan of the Grateful Dead, but I've always wanted, um, you know, sort of an additional insight into um, why they had such a magnetic following. And uh, um, I got some of that. I got some questions answered. Um, and But it's a well-done documentary. Um, it's uh, um, it's very watchable. It's, it's very sad. Um, and kind of depressing and and uh, there's a lot of aftermath, um, but you know the, for the most part I mean this is a band that um, you know along the way has lost more members than spinal tap and uh to you know to to drug overdoses and and a lot of uh, crew members and and um, people involved in the in their uh, rise uh, and sustained popularity through uh the 60s 70s and 80s the one thing that i will say uh my uh hunch that was confirmed and and i mean i would, uh is that you know this band was pretty popular uh among college kids and and uh you know a certain group during the uh 60s and 70s their real heyday their real popularity heyday was the 80s um which i'd always suspected kind of but uh it was you know i was able to to you know sort of validate that suspicion that i'd had that you know i was around for when they were absolutely their most popular and um it's uh it's a good doc it's well done so it's on netflix i think or amazon um but check it out
2: amazon yeah i've watched uh, one of them it's pretty pretty like you said pretty damn good despite the music yeah
0: (laughs) anyway um so uh Jeremy, uh, what song are you going to put on our list of the 100,472 top 10 songs of all time? (laughs) So, so, um, in
2: listening to, uh, you know, I'm going to kind of pay respect to the the playlist I've been listening to. And a tune that I love came on the other day, and I've had it stuck in my head and and actually put me on a hoosker do. Kind of uh, rabbit hole, which I, I don't ever mind going down. But I'm gonna put terms of psychic warfare from Mr. Doo off Middle Rising. Great song. It's a song
0: that belongs in our mix. It's been on a bazillion of my own, so. Christian, what are you throwing on? I think I'm
1: actually gonna crack the seal on the Beatles here. I'm not sure if we've got one on the playlist yet, but No, we uh, don't. Go for it. You never give me your money off uh, off Abbey Road.
0: Nice. Nice. I like that yeah. whole... I wish there I wish there was a way to put all the entire second the side of... The whole suite? Of, yeah, because it really does play so well together. But yeah, that's that's a standout. That's a, a great choice. And uh, I am going to crib from uh, uh, Christian's um, What Are You Listening To selection because when I read the review for Meet Me in the Bathroom, it reminded me how much I loved the song No Love Like That by Jonathan Fireeater, a song that I had... You know, put on a a lot of mixes over the course of time, and and kind of had faded into the uh, recesses of my brain in the past several years. But I'm I'm glad to resurrect it and bring it back because I love that song, and it's going on the list now.
1: Yeah, that guy Stuart Lipton has such a cool voice, and uh, that I mean that organ was just awesome. So no, I love that. That's a great pick.
0: Thanks. Also, one of the sickest drummers I've ever seen. Um, yeah. So there you go. But uh, anyway, that'll do it for this uh, episode. Thanks, you guys, for hanging out. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis,